Welcome to the Russian Rulers Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Schaus. Episode number eight, Dmitry Donskoy. At the end of last week's podcast, I mentioned that I was going to replay the lives of three of the Russian rulers, Dmitry, his son Vasily I, and his grandson Vasily II. But after researching Dmitry, I found there was so much information about him that I wanted to just focus on him for this episode. So, let's go on. Tell a Russian you've heard about Dmitry Donskoy and watch the chest puff, a proud smile come out, and a nod of their head, and be prepared for a big Russian hug as you have just told them that you know the story of a true Russian hero. While Grand Prince Dmitry did not rid his country of the Mongols, he was the one who showed the Russian people that they could stand up to their supposed invincible overlords, and yes, the Russians can be a proud and independent people someday. When Ivan the Meek, Dmitri's father, died in 1359, his nine-year-old son was expected to be given the title of Grand Prince of Moscow without dispute. But as had happened many times in the past, the old Kievian appanage system reared its ugly head, which gave rise to an older uncle claiming his right to the throne over the young boy. The claimant, Dmitri of Suzdal. Both were direct descendants of Visvalad the Big Nest, but then again, who wasn't a descendant of this prolific father? Here we finally have a clash of two systems, one of Kiev, which influenced early Russia and followed the schizophrenic and debilitating appanage system, and Moscow, where rule went from father to son, a direct lineage. Dmitri of Suzdal tried to gain control of Moscow and briefly garnered the title of Grand Prince of Moscow by bribing a rival Khan to the one that had given Dmitri Ivanovich his title. But due to the overwhelming outcry of the Russian people, the backing of Metropolitan Alexei, the urging of some of the boyars in his own town of Suzdal, and of course the big bribes that eventually came in to the Khan and his advisors. So Dmitri Suzdal abandoned his claim to retain the title of Grand Prince of Moscow. With the title firmly in his hands, the now presumptive leader of most of Moscow, with Metropolitan Alexei guiding him, he began to consolidate power and gain respect of his fellow princes. This change in hereditary passing of titles from father to son and quickly dealing with a potential usurper was the breaking point between the old Kievian system and the model that was to carry the way of the Russian rulers all the way to the early 20th century. George Vernadsky, a prominent Russian historian, put it this way in explaining how the time of the Mongol dominance changed Russia and buried the Kievian ways. Quote, a convenient method of gauging the extent of Mongol influence on Russia is to compare the Russian state and society of pre-Mongol period with those of the post-Mongol era and in particular to contrast the spirit and institutions of Moscovite Russia with those of Russia in the Kievian age. The picture changed completely after the Mongol period. Now this is in contrast to another historian, Sergei Platonov, who said, and how could the Mongol influence on Russian life be considerable when the Mongols lived far off, did not mix with the Russians, and came to Russia only to gather tribute or as an army, bought in for the most part by Russian princes for the prince's own purposes. Therefore, we can proceed to consider the internal life of Russian society in the 13th century 
without paying attention to the fact of the Mongol yoke. Now, my opinion here is with Verdansky and another very respected Russian historian, Ryazanovsky, who believed that the influence of the Mongols was not in the institutions they introduced to Russia, which were very few, but in the forced changes and traditions that guided Russia's path and destination and their eventual tremendous expansion. Little Dmitri was on his way to make the grand changes permanent very shortly. Before we get to the fateful event that was to make Dmitri the pride of all of Russia, a growing menace was developing from the west, Lithuania. Grand Prince Michael of Tver, whose city was a constant rival of Moscow, made alliance with the Lithuanians to try to blunt the growing influence of Moscow. This was an alliance that could not be tolerated by Dmitri and his ally, the head of the Russian Orthodox Church, Metropolitan Alexei. Moscow, convinced of impending invasion, dismantled its wooden Kremlin and built new walls, this time in stone. Completed in 1367, when Dmitri was still only 17, the timing could not have been any better, as in 1368 and again in 1372, Michael of Tver, with the help of Olgerd of Lithuania, devastated the Muscovite countryside, but failed to capture Moscow proper. Dmitri, having defeated the Lithuanians, made peace with them, which allowed him to turn his attention to Michael of Tver, whom he defeated on the field of battle. Two other enemies, the city-state of Vyazin and the Volga Bulgars, were summarily defeated. Now the time was ripe to go after the one enemy the Russian people both feared and loathed, the Horde, the Mongols. Since the invasion of the Mongols and control of Russian lands in 1240, Mongol hegemony was for the large part unchallenged except for some minor revolts which were crushed mercilessly. They were viewed as invincible, the impossible to defeat overlords. Even though the Mongols were suffering the effects of upheavals internally, they were still a major force to be reckoned with. The year is 1378 and a powerful strongman had finally taken control of the Blue Horde, an offshoot of the Golden Horde, and his name is Mamai. Incensed by a series of recent clashes and incidents between the Mongols and armies of Dmitri, Mamai needed to teach his underlings a lesson, otherwise they might have to give up their domination over Russia. At this point, Mamai makes an alliance with Moscow's old rival. Here they come again, the Lithuanians. Together, they would attack Dmitri's army on two fronts. Never a good thing if you're the army being surrounded. Dmitri knew that his odds of defeating a combined Lithuanian-Mongol army were worse than slim or none. Having defeated the Lithuanians twice before, it was thought that the safe way to go was to wheel his army westward and attack Lithuanian forces first. Some of his advisors pleaded with him to take this course, but Dmitri, who admittedly was wavering, went with the advice of the revered and eventual saint, the monk Sergius of Radanez who I'll be doing a Slapshot podcast on soon. He turned his army toward the Mongols. In September 1380, on a field near the confluence of the rivers Neprevada and the Don, the famous battle of Kulikova Field was fought. This battle was the one to shatter the notion of Mongol invincibility once and for all. This is also where he gets his name, Dmitri Donskoy, Dmitri of the Don. 
Now, the first major battle to occur before the Battle of Kulikova Field was in 1378, where Mamai sent an army to invade Ryazan and draw the Muscovite army into a battle. The armies met in August 1378 near Ryazan on the Voza River. The Mongol, always super confident, committed a grievous error and crossed the river to attack the Russians. They were routed and hundreds of Mongol horsemen drowned as they went back across the river in retreat. While watching the fleeing enemy, Dmitri proclaimed, Their time has passed. God is now with us. It was for this victory Mamai was seeking revenge for. He was also infuriated by the loss of revenue as Dmitri saw fit to reduce the tribute he sent to Sarai. Dmitri called on all of his allies to send troops to support his fight against the Mongols, and many princes sent their men, but three cities backed out of their pledges to send support. Of course, Tver was one of them, Novgorod and Piskov. Then Prince Oleg of Ryazan also backed out and sent his troops to the Horde. Mamai gathered his army together, some 150,000 strong. But first he made a deal with the Lithuanians, who were unhappy with their forced peace treaty with Dmitri. Together they would put Dmitri's army under siege from two different directions, and in a pincer move, annihilate them. Prince Yagalo would come from the west, and Mamai would come from the east and envelop Dmitri's army. Dmitri, with his army about eighty to 90,000 strong, headed south to avoid having his army encircled. Then, on September 6, 1380, he stopped his army on the banks of the upper Don River. Mamai's army was on the other side of the river, unaware of Dmitri's presence. Gathering a war council, Dmitri debated with his generals on a course of action. Many wanted to wait for more favorable conditions, fearing a river crossing would put the water at their back and they would be unable to retreat if necessary. Then a message to Dmitri from the holy man Sergius, who said, My lord, do not hesitate. March boldly on against the fierce enemy. Fear nothing, for God will help you. Receiving this message emboldened Dmitri, who decided to cross the Don and face off against the Mongols with the river at their backs. This was to be a very fateful decision, as the river, instead of being a barrier to retreat, provided a barrier to encirclement, attacked oft used by the Horde armies. The terrain chosen by Dmitri was brilliant. It had numerous streams and was filled with marshland, which made it almost impossible for the Mongols to use their much-vaunted cavalry to their advantage. At dawn, September 8, 1380, battle lines were drawn. The Russians had three divisions lined up, right, left, and center, with a large cavalry division led by Prince Vladimir of Serpukov hidden in the woods. The battle was on. The Mongols rushed forward on their horses, smashing into the Russian lines over and over, nearing exhaustion on both sides, with men screaming in agony. The center of the Russian line began to collapse. Trampling over the injured and dying men, the Mongols, who were also nearing exhaustion, began to penetrate deep into the center of the Russian forces, when, on call, Prince Vladimir led his cavalry into the fray. This made the Mongols panic, and those who were not killed fled the battle. The tide had been turned, and Mamai watched in horror as his army was routed. The Battle of Kulikova Plains was over, and the Horde had suffered their first major defeat against an opposition army. 
Panic ensued because Dmitri could not be found at first, as he was buried underneath a number of his slain men. He was found much to the rejoicing of his men, half of whom had been slain on the fields of Kulakova. So many had perished that it took over a week to bury the dead. Dmitri, badly injured, suffered numerous wounds from which he never fully recovered, but was hailed a national hero. But this is somewhat of a hollow victory, as the Russian army was too badly damaged to complete the job and hunt down the remaining Mongol army. Prince Vladimir was known from that point on as Vladimir the Brave. Having heard of the defeat of the Mongols, Prince Yagolo, leading the Lithuanians, turned around and headed home. But all was not well, though, because as soon as the princes returned to their respective lands, petty quarreling ensued, and disunity returned, allowing the Mongols time to regroup, and regroup they did. Mamai was not so lucky when he returned to Sarai, as he was quickly overthrown by Tok Tomach, a vassal of the feared Mongol Tamerlane. Joined back together with the Golden Horde, Tok Tomach was to return to Russia seeking revenge, and he was to be terribly successful, much to this, the dismay of the Muscovite population. Storming Moscow in 1382, Tok Tomach was having little success entering the city, even though Dmitri was in the north gathering an army, until a number of traders opened the gates to the walled city, allowing the Mongol army to enter and begin the slaughter of the people who remained there. When Dmitri returned, the shock of the totality of the slaughter of his people broke him. He openly weeped at the sight of all the devastation, never to fully recover emotionally. Still, the Mongols were exposed, as they no longer carried the shield of invincibility, the people knew that the end of the terrible reign of the Mongols was in sight. Dmitri spent the last seven years of his life rebuilding Moscow and reigning in the troublesome cities of Tver and Ryazan. Dmitri succeeded in rebuilding Moscow and growing its dominance over Russia, but the wear and tear of the many years of fighting and ruling took their toll at Dmitri. At the tender age of 39, the Grand Prince of Moscow and Russia hero of Kulakova Field, died in his sleep. A country mourned their fallen hero. With the appanage system having fallen apart, Dmitri's son Vasily I took control of Russia. Next episode, we discuss the life and times of Dmitri's son and grandson, Vasily I and II. Well, thank you for listening to today's podcast. Don't forget forget to visit the website at russianrulers.podhoster.com. You don't have to add the www before Russian Rulers. Just leave a comment, make a suggestion, ask a question, and as always, das vidanya i spasiba bolshoya.